This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Monday, October 23rd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And you know I'm a numbers guy. I'm also a word guy. What I'm saying is keep the installation art away. Tactile experience is not for me. But what I'm really saying is there is this trend in journalism and storytelling to steer clear of statistics and tell the story through anecdote, through humans. I personally like a statistic, I often think a statistic is much more revealing than one single story that supposedly fleshes out the broader trend. But recently, there has been a statistic widely disseminated that stands the info through anecdote trend on its head. And it flummoxes me because as a numbers guy, I think the numbers are not the best way of telling this particular story, or at least this use of the numbers. So here's Jake Tapper this weekend conveying one version of this numerical fact about the number of victims Hamas claimed. A lot of people are drawing parallels to 9-11, although proportionally this was worse. Uh, this is about would be the, the, the same as killing 40,000 people in Israel as opposed to 3,000 has happened here in 9-11. Adjusting tragedy for population size has gotten so widespread, it was even joked about on Saturday Night Live's weekend update. Also, while he was in Israel, Biden said the Hamas attack was like, quote, 15 9-11s. Okay, you can't go somewhere to calm people down and then start rating things in numbers of 9-11s. <laughs> that is not a calm scale. It would be like if your doctor gave you Ambien and said, this will make you sleepier than 20 Cosbys. But to me, this taking the 1,300, 1,400 Israeli slaughtered and running them through the population amplifier is unnecessary. And it actually doesn't tell the story. And this particular calculation, it's always bothered me a bit. For instance, if you told me, oh, my brother just died. And I said to myself, wait, you have three siblings. I have six. So that's like two of my brothers dying. Would it really help me understand what you're going through any better? Every time a tragedy befalls a mass of people in a small country like Ireland, you can say that would be as if 66 times as many Americans had that fate befall them. Two Irishmen fell from a cliff today. Oh my God, that's about 130 Americans falling off a cliff or a crag, if you will. Then you have to do the same thing in reverse. Remember that train crash in India this summer where 296 died? All right, but that would be only like 70 Americans, except it wouldn't. It would be like 296 human beings, family members, souls, stories. 
The size of the politically defined unit affecting the actual humanity? I don't go in for it in most cases. But I have to say, on this one, I appear to be wrong. Not only have I heard many people citing the 40,000 number or the 15 times calculation and citing it in awe and sorrow, they seem to think it communicates quite a lot. They say it to each other and nod their heads and pronounce or at least seem to intuit that it really says so much. I hear Israelis themselves conveying this as a piece of perspective, useful perspective. When Joe Biden said it in Israel, it was well noted in Israel. It was not dismissed. So here's one where the numbers and the use of the population multiplier seems to have added to the story for many people in a way that surprises even me. Noted numbers guy, long-term anecdote skeptic. On the show today, new statistics about wealth and the racial wealth gap. Things actually have improved. They're getting better. I just hope enough people note that. But first, Melissa DeRosa was Director of Communications and Secretary to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. She was, I'm going to say, just about the second most powerful person in New York State. She's out with a new memoir titled What's Left Unsaid, My Life at the Center of Power, Politics, and Crisis. There she discusses the COVID-19 efforts in New York. And she will talk about the nursing home numbers that weakened the governor and the Me Too scandal that eventually brought him down. Melissa DeRosa up next. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Andrew Cuomo was the hard-charging, successful governor of New York State, having been re-elected and re-elected by enormous margins, adding to his father's legacy, and not just successfully navigating the COVID pandemic, but emerging as a well-celebrated hero to millions. Cuomo was as successful as could be found in an American politician all the way through 2020. Then came 2021, and soon it would all fall apart. Allegations of sexual harassment, allegations of hiding the numbers of COVID deaths, and now when I say the name Andrew Cuomo, most outlets will affix disgraced before it. Adding context, the person who is in the middle of it is Melissa DeRosa. She is the author of What's Left Unsaid, My Life at the Center of Power, Politics, and Crisis. She was chief of staff for Andrew Cuomo and secretary to him. And this new book, I don't know, it adds context, it settles scores, it uh, lays out some new information. I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad Melissa DeRose is with me. Hi, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Excited to be here. So let us talk about maybe the dark side, maybe the gray side of this reality, nursing home deaths. The New York State Department of Health undercounted the total deaths of COVID-19 from nursing homes by 50% 
in a report pushed put together by State Attorney General Tish James, factors associated with nursing home infections and fatalities in New York State during the COVID-19 global health crisis. And while the total number hadn't changed, the number went from 8,500 to about 1,500 once a more accurate count was done. I'll also read a headline in the New York Times implicating you directly in this. Cuomo AIDS rewrote nursing home report to hide higher death toll. Many chapters in the book about this. It was one of the two core scandals that undid the Cuomo administration. But what do you have to say about that? The nursing home situation is one of my greatest regrets of what happened during COVID because I think it was so misunderstood and so politicized. And I don't think we ever did a good job of explaining to people what actually happened. And I did my best in the book to try to lay it out as factually and dispassionately as possible. But what happened was in March of 2020, when we start tallying the deaths from the very beginning, from day one, federal government never gives anyone any guidance on how you're supposed to be counting deaths. So it leads to every state doing it completely unevenly and differently. And in New York, we actually took the step of counting people who were presumed COVID deaths, which means based on your best guess, we think this person died of COVID, which turned out to be wildly inaccurate. So in any event, the the death counting from day one was always a little bit of a mess. But in New York, we had decided from the beginning, this is how we're going to report them to the public. People who die in hospitals, people who die in nursing homes. It was the cleanest, easiest, most reliable way for us to report those things. Because then you're not, I mean, we didn't even consider it any other way. But really, it's like you're not asking people to account for what happens when they leave your care. You're just asking the person of where someone died report the death. So that's how we were doing it. The end of April 2020, the tabloids start reporting that they believe that there were more nursing home deaths than were being reported. And we were trying to figure out where the discrepancy was coming from. And so what ends up happening is we discover that they're asking for a different set of numbers, which is nursing home patients who left the nursing home and then went to a hospital and died in a hospital. So where we had been reporting where people died, they were asking for a different set of numbers, which is where, like, if you were a nursing home patient, did you die at all, regardless of where you died? So as I write in the book, we end up doing over a dozen revised surveys that go out to the hospitals between the middle of April and the end of May, early June, asking for the the nursing homes, excuse me, to go back and basically do a retrospective to say, okay, looking back, who can you figure out where your patients went and where they died, where they went and trying to get this new data set. And the numbers were a mess. You had some nursing homes that were literally putting every single death of anyone from their facility counting as a nursing home or counting as a COVID death from March 1st forward. You had some nursing homes that were putting people from December 2019 and listing them as a COVID death. You had some nursing homes who were putting people who hadn't died yet in the future. So we get these wildly inaccurate data sets. And we said, we've got to audit this information before we give it out to the public. So Uh, In the middle of all of this, we were already trying to work on a nursing home report where we were going to answer the question of did the March 25th Department of Health um, guidance influence the number of nursing home deaths? Because that had become this very politicized thing for your listeners, if you don't know what this is. March 25th, Department of Health puts out a directive saying if you can't uh, 
prevent someone from coming into your nursing home solely on the basis of being COVID positive. And they believe that that guidance was consistent with federal guidance. Right. So this is your, your the state. The state of New York says you yes. have to accept yes. these patients. And the allegation is that that decision put people with uh, COVID into nursing homes where it spread like wildfire in dry brush. And it wound up killing a lot of people. There are a couple of considerations like, did it really kill a lot of people? And okay, even if it did, could we have known? Yeah, mistakes were made and that's a terrible way to phrase it, but maybe it's an understandable mistake. So let's just deal with that part of it. What are the answers to those two prongs? Well, so on the, so, and that was the point of the report. The report was supposed to answer the first question of, did the March 25th health guidance impact COVID deaths? And so the Department of Health was doing this report. They had basically dumped all of the data, given them to a consultant, dumped all the data, and they said, run these data sets. They came back and they had included the information that had not yet been verified. So this then became a huge hot potato because in consultation with the health commissioner and the health department and the COVID task force, we had a conversation about this. And we said, does it change the outcome of the report? And they said, no. Both sets of numbers yield the same thing, which is that the March 25th order did not impact COVID deaths. It was driven primarily by staff and it was um, driven primarily by visitors early on through asymptomatic spread when no one understood. We didn't have masks, any of this. And so the decision was made, which was a group decision, which was signed off on by the Department of Health, was use the reliable statistics that we know for sure in this, and then we'll audit the numbers later, which we subsequently did in August. So you're saying that the the allegation in the New York Times headline, Cuomo aides, you, among others, rewrote nursing home report to hide higher death toll. And there was that initial report that McKinsey was the consulting firm that was indicating that there were... 9,000 nursing home deaths, which was not public. You guys worked to, in the Times framing, keep it non-public, but in your framing to be more accurate because 9,000 wasn't accurate at the time? Correct. And then when we did the audit in August, and I write about this in the book in a later chapter, when we actually did the audit in August, we found that the numbers of the out-of-facility deaths, which was that subset that everyone was so focused on, were incorrect to the tune of 20%, which is not nothing. And so again, this was, we were sort of living in this moment where we were in, I refer to it in the book, we were like in the fog of COVID war, where it's like everyone was trying to make these decisions in real time with the best possible intent. And of course, a week, two weeks, a month, six months, two years later, you can look back and say, I wish I would have done this differently if only I had known X, Y, and Z. But we were building the plane, flying the plane, while we were building it. And in that moment, the importance to us was answering the question of did the March 25th order impact deaths in nursing homes because it was becoming so hot and so politicized and we were weaponization of people's pain. But we wanted to do it based on the numbers that we knew were accurate and reliable. But you did intervene to lower this hot button number, which would make the administration look less bad. Now, I heard everything you said and that it was still reasonable, but that what I just said is true. And you did intervene. You, the non-scientist, did intervene to the report put together with McKinsey, but by the health experts. No, I wouldn't say that that's true. I would say that we had discussions with the health department and said, are these numbers reliable? Aren't these the numbers we all agreed were, in fact, not reliable and said that needed to be audited? And they agreed. 
And well, so- but you're, you're, you know, you're carrots and stick Cuomo. I mean, if the governor says, just like if the governor calls a, a hospital and says, you better fucking do this. If the governor says this to the health department, they're going to do it. We would not have overruled the health commissioner. Wouldn't have happened. Okay. All right. I will read to you now. This is from, I interviewed Liz Smith. She thanks you in her acknowledgments. I looked, I don't think you thank her. She worked with the administration. uh, Tell me if you agree with this. Simply put, the nursing home scandal was a self-inflicted PR wound born out of the governor's stubbornness. If Cuomo had simply come out and said that his administration was following the science the best they could, and there was no playbook for handling a global pandemic, and that they made some missteps along the way, people would have understood, but he refused to show any humility, and many in the media assumed his administration was juking the stats to make him look better. The crisis reached a nadir at a January press conference briefing, during which he was confronted about the undercount visibly bristling, he defiantly declared, look, whether a person died in a hospital or died in a nursing home, the people died. Who cares? Who cares are two words that should never come out of a politician's mouth, especially when it has to do with people dying. Fair? Unfair? I mean, look, Liz is a brilliant communications expert. I um, I give her that 100%. And I don't disagree that I think that there, you know, that there were mistakes made in how we were communicating the nursing home issue. And I do think that it was one of the things that it became so politicized and Trump became so aggressive on the New York Post was sort of driving this and it put you in a really defensive perch. Whereas I feel like it's true that if we had taken the sting out of it by just saying, listen, exactly what I just said to you, right? We're flying the plane while we're building it. We're making all these decisions with the best possible intentions and do a better job of explaining and communicating that it would have been less of a political headache at the end of the day and probably done more to, I don't say that there's anything you can ever do to assuage people who have dealt with death because there's not, but I think it would have made the entire situation less politicized for people who lost people. Yeah, or maybe nothing could have worked because you briefed the Democratic conference, told the senators, this is the situation and this is what we're trying to do. You essentially said a version of what you told me, I think. You probably emphasized their interest, which is we're containing the political damage. We froze the numbers, you said. The New York Post, aided by a state senator who uh, you plausibly uh, um, detail how he was out to get you, takes those comments, talks about we froze as we didn't know what to do, we were deers in headlights, and away the narrative goes. And because no one was able to actually access what you actually said, this goes unchecked for a while, and at that point, maybe uh, your goose was cooked. Yeah, I mean, that meeting, my God. So we did that meeting in order to try to take the temperature down with the legislature because we were preparing to release the audited numbers to the legislature when Tish James sort of jumped us and released, blindsided us and released this report that she was putting out, which, by the way, had plenty of incorrect numbers in that report that she released. Um, But so we were taking that meeting to try to take the temperature down with the legislature, be totally open and honest have an open dialogue at the highest levels. And so when I took that question, I used the word froze, but if you actually read the transcript, I used the word paused two sentences later. I was using the words interchangeably. And what I was saying to them was, we finished the audit, the nursing home audit at the end of August and bam, right at the exact moment, it was like two days later, we get notified from the Department of Justice via the New York Post, right? We didn't hear about them from the Department of Justice. We got a phone call from the New York Post. 
that we were under investigation on nursing home deaths. And it wasn't just us. It was us. It was Pennsylvania. It was Michigan. And it was New Jersey. Four Democratic states were being investigated for nursing home deaths. And this was right on the heels of the Democratic convention. And Jared and I had just had a big blow up. The president was furious. And so it all felt very personal and very directed by the president himself. And so what I was trying to explain to them in that meeting was that when we got the notice from the feds that they were going to be doing this investigation and we were going to have to be answering a lot of questions for them, that I reached out to the legislature and I said, we need to pause on getting back to you guys while we deal with the hyper-politicized Justice Department and make sure that we get them what they need. We were being deferential to the Justice Department. But (laughs) in a half a sentence, that one word froze. I mean, my career was over. It, it was in that moment, I mean, all of a sudden I'm getting breaking news alerts. My face is all over CNN and ABC and NBC as if I was trying to engage in a massive cover up from the Justice Department, which, you know, ultimately, as I write in the book, the irony is six months later, we get notification from the Justice Department. They reviewed the numbers. Everything we sent was accurate and there was no need for an investigation. Um, but that was far too late for me. But yeah, no, that that meeting was certainly a moment, a turning point in everything that was going on for me personally, for the administration. I've never been able to forgive myself for how I screwed up in that meeting and trying to to explain something to the legislature that could be so used against the governor and the administration. Well, well but, but, you know, huh. so whatever else one believes or knows about this, it is a fact that your words were taken out of context. And that doesn't always mean that they lied about you. But if you compare the side-by-side transcript of what you said and what the Post printed, no reasonable person would conclude that you said what they uh, were implying that you said, that we froze in fear or panic. Anyway, we have a situation where the New York Post takes a leaked audio. No one else has access to that audio. They put it on their front page. The word froze is in headlines. And now you're beating yourself up for who could have foreseen that set of circumstances? Or is there something else that you're saying, I can't believe, I can't believe I briefed those uh, Democrats. I can't believe I allowed um, Kim in the room. What's the what's the real thing you're beating yourself up about? I know what happened. The, the product is your career was over. But what in the process did you do wrong in that briefing? You know, and I, I write about this in the book. I just... I always felt like it was my job to protect the governor, to protect the team, to have all the information, to work hardest, to be best, to deliver for everyone, to be on my game. And I don't I don't know. I don't know if it's that it was naivete that, of course, like somebody said to me afterwards, I said, well, it was a closed door meeting and that's not what I said. And everyone knew that it wasn't what I said. And somebody said to me, like, You've been in this game for 20 years. You didn't think with Ron Kim in the room that someone was going to try to take anything that you said and hurt you with it and by extension hurt the governor. And I look back on that as I don't know if it was that me being so naive. I don't know if it's that like in the moment when the Post wrote that, if I screwed up by not immediately getting the transcript myself and getting it out the door so we could immediately try to clean it up if there was a way to stop the bleeding on the outset, because it took days for us to do that. And then once we did that, it was too late. Um, But it was just it was the first time that I had ever done anything personally that I felt hurt my team and my administration. And yes, I was taken out of context. And yes, it was the New York Post, but it didn't change the outcome for the people that I worked with. Yeah. 
the, the, the Post is kind of clever in their insidious way. Governor Andrew Cuomo's top aide privately apologized to Democratic lawmakers for withholding the state's nursing home death toll from COVID-19, telling them, quote, we froze, quote, out of fear that the true numbers would, quote, be used against us by federal prosecutors. Every single person would say, we didn't know what to do. We panicked out of fear. But we froze is in quotes as in, we froze the numbers. We froze that report out of you wouldn't say fear that the numbers would be used against us. It's kind of well, and you know a, what's amazing is the way the New York Post works. The, everything they do is a clip job. So, like to this day, if there's a story about a nursing home, anything, they pull that exact paragraph and continue to reprint it, even after the DOJ came back, even after all this time, they still. So you know, and that's the issue with the press. It's when when you allow a narrative to harden. It's almost impossible to undo it, which I write in the book is a lesson I learned over and over and over again in 2021. And don't worry, we shall continue this conversation tomorrow when we discuss Andrew Cuomo's governing style and also we'll discuss the allegations of sexual harassment that led to his resignation. And now the spiel. How rich is the average American family? They're worth over a million dollars. Yes, indeed. And that, my friends, tells you the limits of averages as a way of understanding how real life is lived. Let's talk instead of the average, which is skewed by your Musks and your Gateses. Let's talk about the median American family. You know, half or above this number, half or below that number. And the median American family holds 193000 in net worth. That's pretty good. Every three years, the Federal Reserve releases its survey of consumer finances. And from 2019 to 2022, America did very well. Remarkably well, given that you knew this, right? There was a pandemic. You saw that one, right? And a recession. Median wealth went down a lot during the two-year span of the Great Recession from 2007 to 2009, not so with the pandemic recession. And of course, stimulus checks were a big part of the reason why. But stimulus checks aren't just cotton candy, just not to be recorded in the wealth that was kept. Many people did wind up investing those checks. In fact, more people invested in the stock market than ever have before. It was the biggest rise in stock investing of any three-year period. But it was progress among specific groups that was most heartening, as Marketplace reported. According to the Fed's survey of consumer finances that came out this week, American households saw a record 37 percent rise in net worth between 2019 and 2022. That trend was particularly pronounced among Black households, whose wealth grew by 61 percent, and Hispanic households, whose wealth grew by 47 percent. Now, since white families were at a much higher starting place, 10 times the wealth of black families in absolute terms, whites added more dollars to their nest eggs and their worth than black families did. But the gap, widely expressed in so many places, and you probably read this stat, that white people have 10 times the wealth of black people, that's not true anymore. It's six to seven, closer to six times the wealth. And so we should call that progress. And by the way, white people earning less in general, that is not the solution for black people making more or any other people making more. 
So a couple points. A, all ethnicities are similarly buffeted and benefited by the macro economy. Not exactly all in line. That Great Recession that we lived through really did hurt white families a lot more than it hurt black families. And the racial wealth gap came down in a way that actually wasn't good for really anyone in society. But the other thing I wanted to point out is the path to the greatest flourishing for the black community or anyone is simply to grow wealth. And during the pandemic, black families grew wealth. This clearly surprised or would surprise many experts, the kind of experts we turn to to contextualize the issue of the racial wealth gap. I went back, I looked up a few outlets that defined and epitomized our thinking on the wealth gap. Here was the Brookings Institute in 2020, quote, using data from the survey of consumer finances, that's this very survey that I'm talking about, For 2019, we find that the black-white wealth gap persisted heading into the COVID-19 pandemic, leaving black households with far fewer resources to weather the storm. That's not untrue, but it's decidedly pessimistic, I think designed to get you to conclude they're going to come out of the pandemic worse off, certainly worse off than whites, not really the case. Rand was just as pessimistic as Brookings. They wrote this, and it came out in the Rand Review just a few months ago, but before the latest numbers that I'm quoting came out, they wrote, white Americans hold 10 times more total wealth than black Americans. The median black household in America has about $24,000 in savings, investment, home equity, and other elements of wealth. The median white household, around $189,000, a disparity that has worsened in recent decades. In the summer of 2020, as American cities echoed with protests following the murder of George Floyd, Researchers at Rand decided to take a closer look at America's black-white wealth gap. What would it take, they asked, to close the gap, to give black households the same opportunities that wealth affords many white households? And their answer, they quoted an expert as saying, quote, in 200 years, we could still have problems with racial wealth disparities that are equal to or worse than the problems we have today. I mean, we could, but in reality, four months later, it was revealed that we had a black-to-white racial wealth ratio lower than when those words were written. One last quote for me to convey to you, the Harvard Gazette from 2021, their unequal series. Consider that right now, the net wealth of a typical black family in America is about one-tenth that of a white family. A 2018 analysis of U.S. incomes and wealth concluded, quote, The historical data also reveal that no progress has been made in reducing income and wealth inequalities between black and white households over the past 70 years. Well, now that number isn't one-twelfth, it's close to one-sixth of net worth. That is something. Progress has been made, and also not the first time in 70 years. I don't actually believe that assessment, but it has gone up and down and the gap has been bad. Now it's getting better. I doubt the pessimism of such studies and writings that I convey to you. I doubt that will generally abate. And it is true, in absolute terms, the gap not only persists, it did get a little bit bigger in just pure dollar terms. And let's acknowledge that historically the gap is due in large part to discrimination, denying education, denial of housing or the ability for housing prices owned by black people to go up as much as those houses owned by white people, all have long been sources of wealth generation. 
Of course, one of the largest sources of wealth is inherited wealth and single parent versus two parent households immediately cut in half the opportunity for inheritances. And since two thirds of black kids today are born into a single parent family, that does not argue well for future wealth generation possibilities that rely on inheritance as many wealth generation possibilities do. By the way, everything I said is extremely controversial. It's not wrong at all. I just judge it controversial because I never read about any of that in the analysis that I dive into. What I do read, and this part is true, that single-parent families are because, in large part, to broader economic opportunities. The tax code seems to push a lot of black families into a single-parent status. However, there's a book going around, a celebrated book going around now about two-parent families. I'm going to have the author on. We'll talk more about that. So let me restate my thesis and then get on to something else. My thesis is a seemingly intractable problem lessened to an extent. Please note that that happened because few will. All these stories about wealth generation, the, the papers came out five days ago. It's not as if the internet hasn't had a time to digest it and spit it out to you. Hey, the wealth gap has gotten smaller, but it has. My second thesis is that while the consideration of the black-white wealth gap is certainly worthy of our attention, so is the Hispanic to black wealth gap. Both are far below whites and Asians, by the way, who are richer than whites, and they were examined for the first time fully in the report that just came out. But from 1998 to 2004, Hispanic households trailed black households in wealth. Then, for a few of these three-year study chunks, the two groups, basically the same. But since 2016, Hispanic wealth has been growing, growing faster than black wealth. Now, the average Hispanic family is $20,000 richer than the average black household. The white to Hispanic wealth ratio is only about four and a half to one. And by the way, there are more, almost 50% more Hispanics in the US than African Americans. So again, another picture that's getting better, clearer, better to look at. The black-white gap is improving a little bit less than the Hispanic-white gap, but it is improving overall. It's not hopeless and it's not pointless to note these trends. Also, we should emphasize that government policy, i.e. the pandemic assistance, really has a role in wealth. And let us, I say, dutifully report the numbers and convey the progress. We need to invest in really good charts to show how big the gap actually is, but we also need to invest in really accurate narratives that communicate the fact of progress and the story other than hopelessness. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is sponsored in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. I really did collaborate with the good people at AdvertiseCast this week. Thank you, John Donahue and company. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. 